Good morning, good afternoon, wherever you are. This is Chris, and today's uh, podcast uh, brought to you by Inner Wealth. Uh, <clears throat> okay, enough of that. Is about depression. And uh, I want to talk about this topic from beginning to end because it's, it's really important. And it runs the lives of, I would say, 95% of the human population. And therefore, uh, in its mildest form, it can be called anger or disappointment or frustration or lack of motivation or it can be called uh, uh, laziness. It can be called melancholy. It can be called introspection or uh, deep contemplation. There are many names for it. Alcoholism is one of the solutions for it. People try it. Um, uh, sport, activity, uh, running, uh, work, money, a, a new car, um, sex. There are a thousand uh, million solutions that people propose as a substitute for happiness, which is a consequence of the human spirit. So when the human heart, the human spirit is awake and alive, we're happy. When we're not happy, when the human heart is shut, uh, when we're not awake and alive, we substitute. And those substitutes are of infinite proportion. And a substitute sits over the top of the back end. And the back end of what we're dealing with when we're dealing with substitute is the truth of the matter is we're depressed because we're not happy. We're not in spirit. We're not inspired. We're not living as we want to. Now, medical evidence goes to validate this by saying that um, there are uh, many, many stages or phases. So when we talk about happiness and depression, we quite often uh, perceive um, bookended type a bookended type positions. You're either happy or you're depressed. But it, it isn't. It's all one sliding continuum. And there are, there are different degrees of depression, different degrees of uh, frustration. As I've said earlier in this podcast now, I've said that uh, anger, uh, greed, uh, uh, hate, um, disappointment, even melancholy are phases moving from the normal and natural human state of living inspired with spirit, with an open heart, happy, all the way down to the back end of this, which is chronic depression, which in a sense means it has gone into the subconscious brain and formed a chemical habit within, within the human body. I'm not dealing with the whole spectrum. Uh, of uh, all the way down to the darkest, darkest depression. I, I uh, don't claim to be a doctor and I don't claim to have any medical expertise or psychological expertise in dealing with the human condition when it's gone past the point of no return, when it's become chemicalized um, depression, which is being um, medicated by antidepressants. Once antidepressants are inside a human body, once a person is taking an antidepressant, it's nearly impossible. And I'm talking 40 years working with um, uh, people uh, uh, in my world, um, throughout the world, um, at all levels of depression. I know at a point when a person starts taking medication, the process back out of medication is medicalized 
and needs to be governed by a psychiatrist or a psychologist at the least. So I'm more in prevention than cure when it comes to the bottom end of depression. And so I, I do this rather lengthy caveat at the start of this podcast, just in case somebody listening uh, hears what I'm saying and thinks that I'm providing a solution for a chemical, chemically supported depression environment. I'm not. And um, they, that, that person would be far better off to work with their doctor and their psychologist or psychiatrist to work with the release, releasing themselves from the medical uh, control arm of, uh, of medicine to support their uh, depression. However, on the spectrum between happiness, the spirit, the human heart, all the way down to this point at which we chemical, chemically intervene in depression, there are many graduate degrees of ever worsening depression. Let's look at the signs of depression for a start. Firstly, it, there is a sense of huge ups and huge downs. So significant swings of emotion between enthusiasm and joy for life and uh, I just can't wait to get out there and kick a goal. That position always has its counterbalance in depression. And so one of the things we know about a person in depression is not more than an hour before a phase of sadness or a phase of deep depression starts, there is a period of fantasy. There's a period of thinking that we are superheroes or that we can fly or that we can do anything we want. And quite often, this state is encouraged by the Americanized uh, version of motivation, the hype of you can do anything you want, the hype of uh, the videos that I and, and the audios and uh, the podcasts that I hear coming out of the US, which are anybody can do anything if only they set their mind to it. And I, I think that's just complete bunkum. That is antidepressant behavior, which, as, I, as, you, as you know from the law of balance, antidepressant behavior, uh, such as hype, such as alcohol, such as getting wound up, such as sex, usually when it's over causes a slump back if not into if not worse than the original state in the first instance so we're not into rebound or bouncing in the inner wealth work what we want to do is create prevention now no state of depression is permanent it doesn't have to to last very long it doesn't have to last uh, for years and years it doesn't have to last so the first thing we want to talk about here today is how quickly can you escape a state of depression? Now, this will depend on how much you accept it. If depression is one of nature's principles and it's a balancing principle to elation, then we have to accept that if we want to cause ourselves to be elated, which means to see something with all positive and not see any negative counterbalance in that, then when we see something with all positive, something else we see, must we must see with all negative. It's just a natural progression of the thought process we're choosing. Hence, to accept depression is the first stage of recognition that we are the cause of it. When a person says, I'm depressed, they usually uh, try to flick that cause onto blaming the boss or blaming the company or the weather or blaming the... Uh, uh, 
I don't know, um, the chemicals of the world or the whales or whatever it is. We try to flick the blame outside of ourselves. And in some senses, the blame can be, the thing we're blaming can be the trigger. But the appetite to be elated, to be on a high, is the cause of depression. The appetite to be on a high is the cause of depression. And depression is the consequence of having an appetite to be on a high. Now, whether that appetite is uh, in our brain, for example, I think I'm better than everybody else, or I think I'm, I'm, I'm a global guru, but people haven't recognized it yet, or I'm a better singer than they thought I was, or I'm a better actor than everybody thinks I am, that uh, state of elation has its back end, uh, its, its downside, so we call it, or its dark shadow, as Freud would have put it, it has its dark shadow in a, in a moment of depression. And if we can accept our depressions, it sort of allows us to live freely with our elations. And so if we wish to continue elation, depression, yo-yoing, uh, then we have to accept the consequences of elated thinking. I'm better than who I am. I'm amazing. People just haven't recognized it yet. I'm a superhero. People, I just haven't found the right suit to wear. I'm, uh, I'm uh, impervious to kryptonite. Oh, I'm, you know, I can fly. All these concepts of self, and in sense, in a way, these self-created images of self, better than self, better than who I am right now, these self-created images of self create an elation which has as its back end a depression. And to, to have that, if we're going to buy into the idea of elating ourselves, we have to also embrace the concept of the depression. Now, how long does that depression have to last? Well, the truth of the matter it is, the more you accept it, the more you recognize that you caused it, the more you recognize the elation that, uh, that flows into the back end and causes depression, the more you accept this uh, dynamic, the shorter the depression has to be there. The more we fight depression and we try to elate ourselves the way out of it, the more we cause it because the elation is actually causing the depression. So the more we try to escape depression into elation, the more depression we cause. And this is a really, really vicious cycle for teenagers. So sometimes it's really worth in your home to create an environment where we don't call it depression, we call it a, a quiet time, a moment of boredom. The TV goes off, the music goes off, the iPads go out. Everybody, everybody in the family just sits down and reads a book together. And it's not one person running around cooking dinner telling everybody else in the family to sit down and be quiet. It's not two people running around watching TV telling someone else to go study. It's everybody in the house sits in the same room quietly with a cup of tea. Once upon a time, it was with an open fire and a pipe, possibly. But it sits down in a, in a room quietly and calmly. Maybe there's some meditation music and it's reading time. So there is a depression, there is a, an experience of depression that's acceptable, and we don't call it depression, do we? we? We call that calm or quiet or stillness time in the family. And uh, uh, rather than to put a, a big old badge on it and call it meditation, I just think quiet time is a great word in a family for everybody sitting down quietly, no music, no talking, no TV, 
no food, no nothing, just sitting there reading a book all one by one. When grandma and grandpa come to stay, quite often uh, back in the days when it was allowed, the kids would sit on grandpa's knee or grandma's knee and grandpa would slowly read or grandma would slowly read a book cover to cover, looking at pictures and absorb the child in a time of absolute quietness. If the child got ruffled or agitated or itchy or wanted to scratch, they were sent away and their appetite to listen to a book being read to them was greater than their appetite for hype. And so the kid learnt to, in a sense, balance their hype with quiet time. We've lost it and we've started to define all these quiet times as meditation or yoga or whatever it is. But really, the healthiest quiet time is family time, TV off, um, no food, maybe a cup of tea or or a glass of water, and learning to, as we have talked about previously in podcasts, chew a single sultana and make it last for a hundred chews. That's the beginning of the uh, of the the question about depression. A, it doesn't have to last more than a minute. B, the more we accept that these moments of counterbalance to our elation are important, we shorten the time span and we lessen. The, the degree. So now we've actually started to manage how we embrace depression in our everyday life, how we embrace these downtimes. Three, talking about it. Talking about what is making you depressed or what is causing you to feel melancholy or down makes it worse. Usually, as I said earlier, we target something to blame for our state of melancholy. We target something to blame for our state of depression. But the thing we're blaming for bringing us down is actually the wrong thing. The thing we need to blame for bringing us down is our choice to be connected to something that brings us up. Now, blaming something that brings us down, like complaining about our work or complaining about our body fat or complaining about... Uh, the kids being annoying or complaining about our income or not getting wages reinforces that that is the truth. And so we, as we try to reinforce blame for the negative things that go on in our life, we completely close the window to the positive. So the fourth point in depression is to seek a mindset that doesn't validate or enable the extension of time we live and, and, and immerse ourselves in self-pity. Self-pity is when we blame something for what's happening to self and we say, this caused me to be this, that caused me to be this, but really, we caused us to be this. And by seeking to a different mindset around the topic of what we blame, such as there's a positive and negative in everything, we lift ourselves out of the mindset that caused the depression in the first place. The, the, the mindset that caused depression in the first place, or a downer, or chronic fatigue, or, um, I don't know, uh, eating disorders, or, what it, or stress, or anxiety, all these things are caused by a mindset. And the mindset is typically an attachment to elation, 
to being high, to being free, peaceful, uh, tranquil, in permanency. So we, we, we want to achieve some state of happiness that doesn't fluctuate. Now, that addiction means that everything that goes wrong becomes depressive. And instead of blaming something and talking about it and reinforcing the mindset, when we're in a bit of a downer or we're having a time of melancholy, what's really important is to have a conversation about the two sides of somebody that we're not happy with. Look at what the uh, the two sides of a situation we're not happy with. Try to find the balance in it. And that balance is looking for a, a mindset that didn't cause the problem in order to solve the problem. And so I strongly recommend that if you have a friend or your partner or one of your kids is going through a downer, instead of trying to coach them out of the downer by saying, here's the positive side to your situation, talk about another topic and see the benefits and the drawbacks in that other topic. And let them draw the correlation between the, the hype that generated their depression and the depression that we are trying to hype them up to get out of. Otherwise, we just reinforce the duality of their current thinking. The fifth point of depression is uh, what you've all learned from this podcast over the years, and that is the back on track process. Now, I think the back on track process that I've created after 40 years of grind through the Zen and the yoga and the metaphysics and the and the academic and nine years at uni and all these things the the, the back on track process that I created is so simple and yet it's intrinsically the greatest I think one of the greatest uh, modelings that's that's appeared on the earth in the last 150 to 200 years and it goes like this. When you're going to change something in a human being, you can't change something in a human being without changing everything. Total human awareness means that we are a package of quite diverse values, quite diverse um, goals, quite diverse aspects. And so when we go to do something and say, I want to change myself, we usually, uh, people's most common mode of doing so is to cherry pick the problem that they have and try to solve it. Let's say they say, I'm not thinking correctly. They will go to their thinking and try and fix their thinking. If they say, I'm feeling uh, overweight, they will go to their weight and try and fix their weight. But each of the seven areas of life is linked to each other and they're intrinsically linked and nothing's ever missing, just changes in form. And so what can easily happen in cherry picking solutions and trying to make human change out of a cherry-picking model, we actually just send the problem to another area of life. So the back-on-track process, and I'm going to go through it now, which I think is really the real solution to uh, causation and prevention of getting depressed and staying depressed for more than a few minutes at a time. Let's go through this. The first step in back-on-track is what we call discard, letting go the past. Discard is based on, and the past is the last 10 minutes or the last 50 years, whichever you choose. Discard is based on a very simple four-column process. And the four-column process 
is a way of thinking that can't get depressed. And the way of thinking that can't get depressed, if every time you want to change something in your life, you go back to, gr to grassroots and back to the roots of the tree, is four columns. Benefit in the first column. What's the positives of this uh, decision or what's the positives of this circumstance? Hard to find sometimes. Second column. What's the drawback of each positive? What's the downside of each thing I've written in the positive column? What's the downside of the positives? The third column is what are the negatives of this circumstance that I find myself in? And the fourth column, what are the benefits of the downsides? Now, I'm not going to go through this here. You can go to YouTube and find my discard form all up there ready to watch. And I've even done a, a, a Camtasia um, video of how to fill out the form. But the discard is step one in personal change. And so if you're not feeling on top of the world, not feeling motivated, not feeling inspired, not feeling happy, as it, as it were, not feeling healthy, the first step I would recommend to every single human being on the planet is learn how to do a discard. Because it's just step one of the seven steps in human development, human change. The second step is physiological. Your body holds a memory. And each muscle in your body, if you, if you were to go into it, you would find uh, there are things like scar tissue where blood can't travel. But there are also, uh, the body starts to form a shape. A person who's been depressed for a long time will start to bend their body forward and slump. A person who's been elated for a long period of time, trying to be hype and show the world how clever they are and how fantastic, will develop an arch in their spine with it and it'll, it'll dig deep into their lower back as they try to puff their chest up and show people things. A pain in the neck that is chronic, that goes on for years and years, comes from a person taking too much responsibility for others. So the body is a Bible. It's nature's Bible. And if we don't go to the Bible, if we don't go to nature's body, nature's Bible, and look at our body and look at the biometrics of our body and how it's holding and storing memory and try to unravel a little bit of that memory alongside the discard process, then all the work we do, such as corporate training events and how to be emotionally intelligent, is just a pure and unadulterated waste of time because the body's memory is stronger than the mind's memory. In fact, in yoga we say, where does the mind begin and the body finish? It's, it's impossible to work out. And so it requires a, a daily routine, or at least um, when you do a discard form, it also requires a change of your physical practices. If you ride a bike, you might have to do some lying down over a bolster to stretch and open your spine out and refresh your, 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 your back body as much as you're, as you're generating energy in your front body. It might require a roller down the side of your... Um, down the side of your quads and down the side of your legs so that you don't get knee pain. It might require some twisting. For me, I think that bike riding and swimming come in perfect balance with each other. And so whenever I do bike, I commit to doing um, uh, at least half an hour of easy swimming and some laps in a pool or in the ocean to counterbalance the effect of the bike. So 
The body is the second. It's a cellular change. We're not talking about the physical outer body. We're talking about the cell structure of the body becoming acidic from anger and depression. And what we're trying to do is give it opening, change its diet, feed it more water, reduce its alcohol intake, maybe drop some coffee. We, we make a change in the physiology of the body to complement the change we've made in the uh, psychological part of the body, which is the discard form. So we're now up to step two in personal change. The third step in personal change is environmental. Now, nothing affects the child more than the unlived life of the parent. Nobody treats us better or worse than we treat ourselves. And so quite often, the environment we create around ourselves, our partner, our house, the pictures on the wall, the clothes we wear, the office desk we have, quite often, even the direction our bed is facing, quite often the environment we've created becomes a fixture in which we're trying to create personal change. Now that fixture can become, like a lot of things in life, stale, and it can also anchor thought. And so it's very important to become adaptable and uh, have some sort of uh, a, a process of evolving how things look around you. Now, that may involve a divorce. It may, in <laughs> it may involve a change of house. It may involve a, a can of paint. It may involve a new shirt or deciding to wear white shirts this uh, summer instead of uh, uh, green. It may involve... Putting on a tie or taking off a tie, it may involve wearing a handbag or not wearing a handbag. It may involve a new laptop computer. Everything we do around us um, causes an environmental impact. And we are the environment we create. And it's really important to have a, a, an awareness. For example, recently uh, my partner and I bought a new uh, bed set, a uh, king-size bed with all the facility. And... Uh, two single beds bolted together in a, to make a king. And they were of different um, densities So because she prefers a softer bed and I prefer a harder one. And we changed it all, but both of us couldn't sleep properly. And we found that the new sheets we bought were too good a quality. We'd bought Egyptian cotton sheets. And when we went and explored this topic with the bed shop, they said, yeah, well, very high quality cotton sheets hold heat. And in the middle of summer, we were both overheating from the bottom of the bed up through the sheet. So it's really interesting to see how environment has such an important impact on something so vital to our lives as our sleep. The other thing that I do every single night without fail is I stand in the bathtub and turn the tap on to as if I was filling the bath full of cold water and I wash my I just scrub my feet along the bottom of the bath and drop a bit of soap onto them and I wash my feet every single night before I go to bed and I sleep like an angel it's so beautiful to have fresh feet when you go into bed I cannot ever no matter how cold the temperature sleep with socks on I can't sleep with dirty feet either and I I found that it's a yoga principle and I found that to be really, really helpful. And if ever I've got insomnia and I can't sleep, I get up and wash my feet in cold water in the bathtub and dry them off very cleanly and properly and get back into bed. 
So environment really impacts us. And we know this on a gross level because we know we're working for a company and we've been there for so long. We walk in the same door. We start to all automatically expect things to happen. Even if they don't happen, we look for them for to happen. It can be also with people who've got an issue with their mum or their dad, expect women to behave in a certain way or fathers to males to behave in a certain way. And they model that and they look for that for proof of that environment. So our environment is an anchor, is the anchor point for our physiological and psychological belief patterns. And we need to be very, very conscious if we really want to evolve and keep ourselves on track and stay on track in life and not become depressed and bored with things. We need to be conscious of continually improving and refining and simplifying and beautifying our environment. Remembering this, there are five different uh, constitutions, elements in the world. Earth, water, fire, air, ether. And each person will define their perfect environment differently. For example, an etheric person, usually very tall, thin person, but a very tall person, will define their, a beautiful environment is more like a, a white vogue environment with open windows to the universe. An earth person might define their perfect and evolving environment as an environment full of wood and leather and the richness of the earth. Um, a, a water person, for example, might uh, uh, um, uh, describe the perfect environment as one with really soft materials and comfortable chairs and beanbags and, and things where people can sort of sloth and hang out and just chill and it's more a watery, soft, caring environment with the background soft music. A fire person would, be, would define that environment as toxic. A fire person wants time-effective, fast-paced, changeable, adaptable, functional, efficient environment where they can do one thing without too much time, get on to the next thing. And so the environment that these couples start to compromise on can cause one person to thrive if they're the dominant uh, decorator of the home and another person to shrink. And so the, evolver, the evolving of our environment becomes critical the higher up we go in responsibility for our own development and the responsibility we have for the world's development. Let's just call it over the age of 30 for want of a better label. But it's really not a number, is it? It's a state of mind. Moving on to the fourth uh, principle of, uh, of uh, personal development and change and personal growth, we move on to the fourth one, which is to understand the importance and the value of human values. Now, there is nothing affects the human condition more than self-worth. We know a person of low self-worth will be in a state of misery even if they've got a billion dollars in their pocket. And I've coached three, I've now coached three billionaires in the world who were miserably depressed, which is the topic of this podcast, by the way. And they were miserably depressed in spite of the fact that what would appear to be they had everything a human being could ask for, including a partner, including great health, including a business that was going really great. It looked on the surface like they had everything they wanted. However, on exploration, you find that every human being has a hierarchy of values. 
And when we work on our highest value, we have the highest self-worth. So for example, in my original times walking through the Himalayas of Nepal, this is going back nearly 35 years, and I'd walk through the Himalayas of Nepal, you'd come across villages where the children were living, uh, I don't know what it's called, but you know, a little bit like hand to mouth. There were no TVs, no radios playing, uh, you often got uh, a, a rock thrown at you from a cliff because if it hit you on the head, knocked you out and killed you, your backpack and the money you were carrying in your wallet was worth more than 10 years of salary for the people who were in the thieving mode in the environment. But there were along the way the most beautiful, beautiful Sherpanis and Sherpa children and Sherpa people and, and, and uh, these kids had very little the people had very little but they were working on their absolute highest value and their highest value for some was simply providing a beautiful uh clean hair and um, lice free environment and enjoying the sunshine and being safe so when a person's working on their highest possible value the thing that's core to them as an individual they're the happiest they can be, no matter what they have. Whether they have a billion or five dollars, it's irrelevant. Now, finding out what your highest value is, it and and remembering this highest value, these highest values are thumbprint specific to you. Nobody else in this world has your value set. Generically, we do. We say, well, I value money and this person over here values money. But how it, what it means to you intrinsically is unique to you. And so understanding your, your value hierarchy is really critical to personal change. Because if you move in your change process in the direction of your lowest value, which might be going to work, it might be doing a good job, it, your lowest value might be owning a house, your lowest value might be someone else's highest value, and so you're trying to please somebody by working on your lowest value. If you make personal change and go in the direction of your lowest value, Although it may make you more money and raise you up in society or raise you up in the club or raise you up in the community or the family, it will lower you down in self-worth. And when a person's lowered in self-worth, their behavior toward themselves becomes sabotaging. So we sabotage anything that doesn't link to our highest value, which is often called our life purpose. So we sabotage anything that doesn't link to our highest value, even if it if that thing that we're doing looks like for everybody and for all intents and purposes, an incredible positive step. I hope you can hear the rattling in the background because that is the storm in Bondi Beach banging against my windows and it is absolutely uncontrollable because the wind speed at the moment is up around 57 to 60 kilometers per hour straight onto the front of our building. So there's nature doing her thing and it's her highest value. So in the fourth step, we ask ourselves this, what is my, what is my hierarchy of values? How can I reprioritize my top three values? Now, whenever personal change happens, the focus we have to bring to our highest value accelerates. And so 
the uh, at, at, at the age of 10 it doesn't matter if we're working on low values or high values we, as long as we're circulating around them it's kind of like okay but the more responsibility we take and the more we want to be involved in the world and lead the world and do something really fantastic in the world the more responsibility we have to work on our top three values and to organize supervise and deputize work in our lowest three values that's where a couple can really work well together if they realize the differences they have in values they can honor each other's values by saying you do that i'll do this what's currently happening a lot in the world is couples are saying we have to do the same thing now two people with the same values one of them's not necessary that's called a divorce so by honoring the fact that we have a diverse range of values between partners partners it does the same sex or different sex partners doesn't matter by honoring the fact that we have a different range of values means it means that one person can do what they consider to be the most important things in their life without another person thinking that they that the that, that by them doing it they're leaving the relationship a good example is couples who think there's equal child minding time is a great way to couple in a family this is completely bunkum one person will have a priority of child minding high on their list and the other person typically it will be pretty low so that the there will be shared child minding but not in volume of time and this is really important to understand and love each other so there's the fourth one a reprioritization of your values in order to raise your self-worth in order to be available and turn up for the thing you love most in life and the thing that you value most in life and that is an acceleration of your self-worth and the thing that you're going to do will be automatically improved the fifth step in this is one that people confuse quite often it's called vision the human heart doesn't care about the past the human heart has no interest in the present emotions care about the present and our feelings care about the present they're called emotions and they belong in the solar plexus around the tummy the, the the that's the present the past is stuck in our memories in our brain up the top of our head which is in physiological language around the hip bones around the genitals so the past is anchored in our hips and our uh, 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 genitals and our um, what's called our digestive processes so bladder problems kidney problems hip problems all of these problems down in this lower area of the body are related to being anchored in the past in order to move us forward into the future we have to have a picture of the future that's worth letting go the past for so for example someone might say i really fear high mountains and you say let's go up the top of the eiffel tower and they go no i fear high mountains i'm not going to confront my fear i'd rather stay stuck in the past fear of high mountains is something i experienced once i'm not going to re-experience it you say but at the top of the eiffel tower there's a meeting going to take place in which you and your guitar are welcome to come and play for the head of sony records and at that meeting you could get a recording contract to change the planet become a world star and then suddenly the vision of the future 
starts to outweigh the nervousness and therefore the vision of the future is the, the instrument that draws people into the future and draws them away from being self-obsessed in the present and stuck in the past. Now, the past is a pretty powerful beast. It's no different to a bear or a tiger or a rhinoceros or, or a hippopotamus or a crocodile or a shark in the water. The past is lurking there, ready to grab any time. And if the future, if the engagement in the future is not authentic, it's not genuine, it hasn't been thought through, it isn't inspiring, it's unrealistic. If any of these things come up about where we're going in the future, we live in the past. We live in fear of it coming and therefore we live in the past. Nothing ages a human being and nothing keeps a person stuck in the past more than fear. Fear of the future. Because what they fear is the past reoccurring. And so anything we haven't processed in the past becomes dominant in the life of a person who doesn't have a powerful, powerful vision. Now, there is no good reason to set goals. We, we, if you look, listen to the podcast I've done recently about my adventures in America and going down to Santa Fe, you realize that goals are ridiculous in a sense because opportunities come and things just take you in the new directions. But the most important thing about a goal is that a goal links to a vision and a vision links to a purpose. And that means it keeps your eyes pointed towards the future. It keeps you moving in the direction of the future and therefore it prevents the past the crocodiles the sharks the bears taking a grip on your underpants and pulling you back into the fear that you have now this is really important stuff and i would say in coaching uh, and in human development there is nothing more complicated and nothing more important than clear vision nothing more important than st stepping those that clear vision down into clear goals and nothing more important than linking daily habits to those goals and those visions. So I would say in the steps we've made so far, changing your mind, changing your cellular structure of your body to adapt your mind and body to new thought, opening your environment for a new sense of awareness, new awareness around yourself and create an affirmation of environment to say, I'm going in this direction. Nothing more important than even saying, I'm going to work on my self-worth, on my dominant value, in order to not sabotage my life. Nothing is more important than the vision part. And I say this because when the heart shuts, we, 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 we start to collaborate on what's called a half-hearted attempt. And a half-hearted attempt, in surfing, I heard... Uh, uh, the world champion talk about uh, joking about watching people in very big waves. And when he goes out surfing, he watches people in very big waves who are half-hearted about catching them because he was being asked, what's the secret of riding big surf, really big dangerous surf? And he says, commitment, 100% commitment. And when he talked about people who make half-hearted commitment, he talked about crocodile arms. In other words, they're, when they're lying on their surfboard and they start to paddle, their elbows come up out of the water and they start paddling but really there's no depth to the dig that they try to get their surfboard on the wave and he, he that, that's for him he starts to laugh because he sees in a competition and he's the world champion I think 14 times he sees people doing crocodile arms and he knows they're not even going to give it a go 
and he takes the wave. So this is the same in business, in relationships, in families. It's the same everywhere. When we lose our vision, and that's what a child has automatically. It, 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 a child lives with spirit. It lives in the spirit of the future. It looks forward to the future with a great acceptance and celebration of the present. A child looks forward to the future. And adults over the age of 35 start to fear the future. They fear it going away too quick. They fear repetition of shit that happened in the past they haven't let go of. And so the future becomes clogged, foggy, clouded. And this is something that needs to be cleared on a regular basis every time we go around this cycle to refresh our enthusiasm, engagement for the future. The final step in this story, the sixth, is self-talk. When I did a keynote speech one day in front of an audience, there was a man in the audience uh, who I valued as a, as a speaker-teacher, and it was in the early days of my speaking. And I asked him at the start, would you give me f constructive feedback at the end of the program? It went for three hours. I ran this program. At the end of it, he said, look, it was, the content was great. There's nothing wrong. The jokes were funny. Everything's good. He said, but the one thing that you keep asking the audience is, is everybody, is everybody clear? Does everybody get that? And he said, there's an assumption in your self-talk that they don't. So you're, you're questioning, did everybody get it? He said, you're far better off to say to an audience, I'm sure you understand this, let's move on. I'm sure you understand this, let's move on. Now that's self-talk, because I'm the guy that's saying to myself, I hope they get it. <laughs> and so my self-talk reflected in my outer talk. And over the period of weeks after that presentation, I did another six or seven presentations. I rehearsed over and over again. I'm sure you understand this. Let's go to the next point. I'm sure you understand this. Let's go to the next point. And eventually, I talked myself into believing that everybody understood what I said. And it took away a massive amount of nervousness from my keynote speeches. Now, that's self-talk in a very tiny little package, tiny little thing. But what if we're saying to ourselves, geez, I hope she stays with me, or I hope he likes me, or I hope I get a relationship, or I hope I don't fail, or I, I, I you know, like, there's so much we can be saying to ourselves, which has become such a, a script and such a, an unknown voice, that the only way we'll ever know what we're saying to ourselves is to listen what we're, to what we're saying to others. And there lies a great power, is to recognize that by encouraging others in a confident way, we build our self-confidence. By knocking others down or looking at what they do wrong or criticizing them, we lower our self-confidence because what we say to others, we say to ourselves. What we say to our others, we say to ourselves. So if what we say to others is affirmative, I'm sure you're going to, I'm sure you're over uh, bigger than this stress. I'm sure your, uh, your confidence will take you to the next level. I'm positive that you have all the skills you need to take you to where you want to go in life. By talking to others in an affirmative way, we start talking to ourselves in affirmative ways. Now, the higher you go in business, the more likely you are to meet somebody who will be very affirmative to your face, very affirmative outspoken, 
but may hire somebody else to be the opposite, to be the critic. They understand the rule of self-talk. They understand that if you inject into yourself a negative comment that you give to somebody else, if you inject that into yourself, you end up poisoning yourself eventually. And at a very high level, that can have very, very, very serious negative consequences given how many negative darts are being thrown at leaders. The final step, and I said there were seven, and six is the final step of action in back on track in how do you make change in a human being. The final step is results. Words are words, thoughts are thoughts, ideas are ideas, suggestions are suggestions, opinions are opinions, but results are reality. When we dream and visualize ourselves as this month's uh, podcasts are going to focus on, when we dream and visualize ourselves somewhere in the future, that vision is still etheric. The results of our work and the results of our self-development are identified in how many of those goals and visions did we cause to manifest in what form they manifested. Being grateful for what we've got and being thankful for the form we've got it is the base. But causing results and manifesting things in the way we want them, that's mastery. So the final step in the back on track is to measure results. To be really clear what we want, to know what we want and where we're going, and then put these other steps in place, the seven steps of back on track, to make sure that we focus on being the best version of ourselves we can possibly be, and at the same time, making the world a better place, one heart at a time. This is Chris. Have a beautiful day. Bye for now.